The CFOs that get it, get it. The CFOs that don't, don't. Let's talk about the CFO, the Chief Financial Officer. There are two kinds of CFOs. One who's struggling to keep up, spreadsheets everywhere, manual processes. It takes weeks to close the books. The other kind is on top of their game. Automated reports, inventory, commerce, and HR flow into the financial model seamlessly. NetSuite is everything you need to grow all in one place. That's why NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system used by over 28,000 growing businesses. 93% of businesses increased their visibility and control after upgrading to NetSuite. Head to netsuite.com slash c-suite for a special one-of-a-kind financing offer. That's netsuite.com slash c-suite. netsuite.com slash c-suite. Get the inside track on 20 top business trends for 2020 from Joe Block. Joel's insights bring Wall Street to your street so you can profit from the inside in 2020. Just text the word TREND to 72000. That's 72000 and download your free copy today. Grab your phone and get the inside track on business trends that affect you and your business. Just text the word TREND to 72000 for your copy now. This is Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. Insights to give your business the inside track. And now, here's your host, Joel Block. Every executive of a privately held company has to ask him or herself all the time, how much is my business worth? They might ask who's going to buy it and how long will it take to sell and when do I get my money? Uh, A host of questions that are very disturbing if you don't have good answers. So to give us some good answers, Michelle Seiler Tucker. Michelle, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here, Joel. Well, good. Listen, these are burning issues. These are not questions that people take lightly. In many cases, uh, it's their life's work tied up in their business. Maybe it's good for them to give to their family. Maybe it's not, but they have these kinds of questions and problems and Hopefully, you can give us a little bit of resolution so that these people can sleep a little bit better at night. I would love to. I love business owners to sleep well at night. (laughs) Well, (laughs) let me tell you, I I imagine the day that somebody closes and gets their money, they sleep pretty good. They do. They do. And, you know, they do as long as we do the work ahead of time. And when I say do the work ahead of time, that means take them through the seller sanity check ahead of time because business owners, most of them don't know, what do I need to live on? How long do I need that money? What am I going to do with that money? What am I going to do when I exit my business? What's my beginning strategy going to be? Who's going to take care of my employees? Who's going to take care of my clients, et cetera. So I bring sellers through this whole process, because if they never plan their beginning strategy, they'll never exit their business. Does that make sense? You know, so what's interesting about that is that they're busy focused on their business. And then, uh, you know, in order for them to exit, an entirely new set of issues has to be addressed, which uh, most of these people are probably never thinking about. Uh, Maybe the most important of which is what am I going to do with the rest of my life? Yes, because if we don't plan their their beginning stage, if we don't plan what they're going to do next with the rest of their life, they'll never sell. They're sabotaged to sell. They do it all the time. I see it happen again and again and again and again. 
So I really try to get owners comfortable with what am I going to do next? I had a husband and wife own a manufacturing business and they turned down six different LOIs and every single LOI met the price and terms that we set up in the engagement agreement. And they kept finding a reason to net pick, to net pick, to net pick. And I finally said, listen, guys, you got to figure out what you're going to do next. And they called me and said, you know what? We've always been passionate about a bed and breakfast. And that's what we've always wanted to own. So we're going to take the proceeds of the sale. And we're going to buy a bed and breakfast or we're going to start one. And they wanted one in Vermont. And that's what they decided to do. And once they made that switch, once they figured that out, then the next offer I bought to them, they accepted, they made it through due diligence and we closed. You know, sellers so, have yeah, so, seller's remorse. It's called seller's remorse. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, what I'm hearing is that uh, suddenly they were motivated to move forward because they had something to move forward to. Correct. As opposed to going into the abyss. Correct. Which they couldn't relate to at all. So Correct. Uh, very smart. So, you know, I mean, listen, you're, you're a business, you're an intermediary, a business sale intermediary. I'm a mergers and acquisitions master intermediary. I've been doing this over 20 years, sold over a thousand businesses. I don't just sell businesses. I buy businesses. I flip them. I also partner with business owners that are struggling to help them build a business. So it's actually sellable for their desired price tag. So I really focus on buy, sell, fix, grow. So, so this is uh, an area, you know, one of the things that uh, the brokers or people in the middle, the intermediaries, there's the side number one, there's side number two, and then there's the deal. And then your mm-hmm. job, I guess, is to advocate for the deal in the middle so that the deal gets done and help the seller get out of his way or, or something. Is that pretty close? Yes, yes, yes. And there's a lot more moving parts than that. <laughs> need, needless to say. Needless yeah, to say, needless to say. But yes, and you know, we always make sure that we have backup buyers. We never stop marketing. We never take the business off the market because- the likelihood of a buyer falling through in due diligence is, is pretty prevalent. So we always make sure we have backup buyers as well. We also try to do the majority of our due diligence up front because we want to make sure there's no skeletons in the closet. We want to know where the bodies are buried. We want to know where everything is before we do get into due diligence. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Uh, you know, the questions that I start out with, how much is the business worth? Who's going to buy it? Those are really front end questions. But they'll never get through the front end if they don't do the things you're talking about to get to the close, because it's a, the, the front end is a lot different than the close. There's a lot of things that happen, and which is mm-hmm. what you're describing in between the I want to sell my business and you get a check. So uh, let, let's go through a handful of those things. What, what okay. would you say are the most important things that the management of a, of a company or the ownership of a company needs to do in order to sell their business? So what the biggest thing is to plan your exit, believe it or not. Number one is plan your exit. Nobody really thinks about selling until they have to due to a catastrophic event occurring. You know, business owners that never thought about selling now are saying, I got to sell because of COVID (laughs) because their business is going down. So business owners really never think about selling until a catastrophic event has occurred, external or internal, health issues, divorce, partner disputes, you know, all kinds of different reasons. And when you're thinking about selling then, that's typically the wrong time for you to sell. Eight out of 10 businesses don't sell, according to Steve Forbes. And Steve Forbes endorsed our book, Exit Rich. So the big thing is, is plan your exit. Determine what is my desired end game? What is my desired sales price? What do I want to sell my business for? If you want to sell your business for $20 million, then fine. That's your, I call it the solid truck or GPS exit model. That's your destination. 
but you need to know your current location, your current valuation, where you're starting from. So if your business is worth 10 million and you want to sell it for 20 million, what's your time frame? Five years? Okay, five years. Then reverse engineer it and say, okay, I'm in manufacturing. Who's my buyers? There's five types of buyers. First time buyers not going to buy my business, but a private equity group might be interested in my business. If I have, you know, over $3 million in EBITDA, then a private equity firm might consider purchasing my business for a platform, private equity groups by two ways, platforms and add-ons. So a private equity group might be a good fit or a strategic or a competitor. So you need to know who are your buyers? Who's your buyer going to be? And what's their buying criteria? What are they looking for? What does the EBITDA need to be? Everybody's always focused on the gross revenues. It's not about the gross revenues. It's about the EBITDA. Most private equity groups won't even look at you unless you have over $3 million in EBITDA. So, so me, you so, need to plan that exit first and foremost. Go ahead. So let me ask you uh, something here. Do you start working with companies five years in advance? You know, I do and I have, and I've got companies right now that I'm, I got a company right now that we've been working together five years and our plan is to sell for 10 million and we're almost there. Yep. So you help companies kind of think about it, kind of organize themselves. Cause I know that from a, from a financial accounting perspective, a lot of the smaller middle-sized companies, these companies, the 10, the $20 million companies, they don't necessarily have the best financial accounting records. They don't necessarily. Amen. Uh, they, sometimes <laughs> they treat these companies like they're their personal piggy bank uh, and they pay the price when it, they save taxes up front, but they pay the price when it comes time to sell because their EBITDA is, is almost nothing sometimes. Yes. And we, so yes, we do work with business owners that help them plan their exit. Some business owners just can't hang on. They don't want to, you know, they won't, don't want to wait till they can get to that $20 million price tag. But you know, my whole message in exit rich is plan early, plan early and never stop planning slow and steady wins the race. As far as financials go, you know, we work with business owners to plan their business and operate their business in all six P's. And we can get in those six P's in a minute. But yes, you're right. Many business owners treat, and not just small business owners. We have a business we're selling right now that's got $12 million in EBITDA and they treat their company as a piggy bank. And we're adding back about 3 million of it. So you have to normalize the financials. We normalize the financials. You know, we add back personal expenses, non-recurring expenses, so we can get to the true business expense and determine what that seller's discretionary earnings really are. But you're right. They do treat it as a piggy bank. And then, you know, over a period of a couple of years, do you counsel people to stop doing that and then let a couple of years of financial statements build up the normal way so that they can increase their valuation, get a good multiple? It just really depends upon where their head is and when they need to exit and why they're exiting. But yes, we always tell people we normalize the financials. Everybody normalizes the financials, but we do normalize the financials. But we tell people, you know, stop keeping cash, count everything, <laughs> don't hold cash, don't hide cash. And yes, we do counsel them on their financials. Absolutely. How involved are the CPA and attorneys who have been guiding these business owners? Uh, you know, that because they have a pretty substantial amount of influence over how this happens. So most of the attorneys, I'll start there. Most of the attorneys that clients have been working with are not really experts in mergers and acquisitions. You know, they really haven't done any deals. They might be good at contracts or good at what they do, but they're not really experts in M&A. Accountants, some of them are good and they really understand 
um, accounting. They really understand how to reduce tax liability, decrease tax liability when you go to sell your business and asset allocation and all these things. And some do, some don't. So I do have firms that I've been working with for over 20 years that I will introduce to a client if need be. And a lot of times our firm will work with their local counsel or their local CPA. You know, I'll share a little secret and you probably know this little secret. The CPA and the attorney have a little hidden agenda sometimes because uh, you could, the, the CPA has had this client for 20 years, maybe longer. They're, they're a cash cow. They're making money on it every year. As mm-hmm. soon as it goes to a new buyer, it's probably going to go to a new CPA and by the way, a new attorney. So the CPA and attorney stand to lose as a result of this transaction. They make some money doing the work that year, but they ultimately stand to lose in the long run. Do you find that to be a problem? Yeah, so not really. And let me explain why. So, well, I have some big firms that I work with that both are accountants and attorneys. And they're not in there to take that business. That's not why they're there. They're not in there to get the local monthly, month-to-month business. They're in there to assist with due diligence, assist with making sure the LOI has the correct language in there, to assist with decreasing tax liability, to assist with asset allocation. You know, my last deal I bought them into, they saved my client $1.8 million in taxes. So they're there to do the heavy lifting to make sure the deal gets done and to save clients money. The local CPAs don't always have those core competencies and the, the expertise to do that. Neither does the attorney. So I don't really, you know, yes, I've had some pushback with accounts are like, oh, well, we don't need to use them. We know what we're doing. Our attorneys have said that from time to time. And then I just tell the seller, you know, at the end of the day, it's you. But if we lose a deal because you didn't listen or because you didn't hire the right firm because attorneys kill deals. We all know that, right? Attorneys can kill deals. Yes, yes, they can. (laughs) So if we don't have the right firm working as a team in a spirit of getting the deal done, not just in a spirit of trying to get your way and renegotiate the deal so you look like the smartest person in the room or you think you're, you know, boost your ego or whatever the reason might be, then you might lose a deal. So I can't make a seller hire a certain firm, but we can, we suggest, you know, here's your options. You decide what you want to do. But the firm, the firms that we use are not in there to take the local people's business. They will work side by side with the local people. And then guess what? If the local CPA is on board with it, they're going to learn a lot of stuff they never knew before. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense. And uh, these agreements, uh, if they're not written just right, you can, uh, you can claw back and there could be all kinds of other problems that, uh, yeah. that you, you just don't want to deal with. There's clawbacks and then there's, you know, all kinds of other issues. And if you're trying to, to mitigate taxes, you got to make sure you have the proper language in the LOI that makes it to the asset purchase agreement that makes it to the closing docs, right? Yeah. You got to have a paper trail. You got to follow everything. And if you don't know what you're doing, you really could, you know, cause the seller some major harm. So I'm, I'm always been a fan of hiring the experts. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. Let me, let me ask about uh, you, one of the things you had mentioned that, that the sellers get concerned about are their employees. How do you see these uh, businesses dealing with the employees uh, after some transition is complete? So most buyers want to buy a business that operates on all six P's, all six cylinders. The number one P is people. Buyers don't want to go in 
and ha- have to start over and hire all new people. People are the company. So most buyers want exit. Look, we're still in a dental lab right now in Houston, and we just wrapped up due diligence. And the last piece of due diligence was to go out and take all the employees to dinner, have a meeting the next day to meet with all of them before we close in a week. And that was very important to them because they said, if the employees are not on board, then we're not going to move forward in, in the sale of the business. So most buyers are adamant about the employee staying on and having a good working relationship with them. Most buyers don't want to come in and get rid of everybody. And what kinds of techniques are, uh, are sellers using to get their employees to feel comfortable, feel committed going forward and, and so that they stick around? Because a lot of times there's, uh, you know, we got to have a three-year clause. We got to have something that people got to stick around for a while or, and you got to stick around for a while. So what are buyers and sellers doing to incentivize employees to stick around successfully? You know, it all really depends upon the size of the transaction, right? The bigger the deal, the more stuff that, that buyers want, like they want non-competes and everything else. On this dental business that we're doing, the owner already had contracts for all the key and people. So all the management team already had non-competes. So they're making sure those non-competes are transferable, which they are to the new owner. And that's, that's a big thing for your business owners to know is any contracts you have, make sure you have a transferability clause in there because it's going to be an asset sale, not a stock sale. 99.9% of all deals are asset sales. So let's talk about that. Cause that's, you know, you kind of gloss over it cause that's kind of a jargon thing, you know? So let's, let's explain what that 99% is and why that is so critically important. What you're talking about. Yeah. So uh, 99.9% of all deals are asset sales. Buyers want an asset sales. Sellers want a stock sale. <laughs> so buyers, they don't want to buy the liability, the owner's business, if there's any penny losses, any outstanding tax issues, anything that can come and you know um, be a burden on the buyer, the buyer doesn't want that. So they want to buy a business that is free from all liability. And yes, you can add home har- harmless language and identification clauses and all that good stuff. But, you know, buyers would rather depreciate the assets, buy an asset sale and start clean. Um, yeah. So I will tell you, almost every sale is an asset sale unless there is something that cannot be transferred. You know, unless it's a business that's been in business for decades. And let's say they have government contracts and they've had the same EIN number since day one for 80 years, and it would be a huge upset to change that EIN number. You know, or a construction company that's doing municipality and they have, you know, all this bond, what do you call it, the bonding that they have to have to have these major jobs and government contracts and everything. That's kind of hard to do in asset sales. So there are exceptions to the rule, but 99.9% of all deals are asset sales. So buyers want asset sales so they can start clean. Could you just explain the other side why sellers want stock sales? Yeah, because of capital gains. Yes. You're a financial advisor, right? I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, I run a hedge fund and I'm, I'm a CPA, but okay. I'm, I'm well, not you're asking for- a CPA because yeah, of capital well, gains. And I'm not helping you with your skills, by the way. <laughs> yeah, no, I, don't, I don't do CPA work, but uh, no, I want the audience to understand that the yeah. seller wants to sell the, the lump sum business as a corporation with the stock because- they probably own the stock for $1,000. They're going to sell the company for $20 million, and then they're going to get capital gains rates on the entire sale. Correct. So uh, it's a much less favorable treatment to do it as an asset sale. 
but uh, but it's much more advantageous to buyers. And I guess buyers get their way 99.9% of the time. And that's team. why it's imperative to have the right team that can uh, mitigate that tax liability and have some tricks of the trade, so to speak, to decrease that. And, yeah. there, are, you know, we have firms that we work with and that's all they do is specialize in mergers and acquisitions transactions to help decrease the seller's tax liability. Yeah. Because the buyer will just move on to the next deal. The other, the other thing is, uh, taxes aside, part of the reason that the buyers want these asset sales is it breaks all the contracts with the employees. It breaks the pension. It breaks everything, doesn't it? So they're now they, they bring the new employees over and they rehire them. Isn't that how it works? Well, they do. So um, in, this, in this one that we're selling right now, they're not having him sign new contracts and everything because there was a transferability clause in the contract. So they're not having to sign new contracts, but they're not on the hook for a paid vacation. They're not on the hook for, you know, all the previous benefits. Yeah. Hey, um, that kind of makes me think of something else. All people are different, but have you seen really generous sellers with their employees where they just, they say, listen, it's my money, it's my business, but I want to share some of it with you because mm-hmm. if it weren't for you, uh, this wouldn't have mm-hmm. happened. Tell us yeah, a story about, about something that you've seen happen. Yeah, there's actually quite a few cases that I've seen like that where, you know, a seller will say, and I'm trying to think about a specific incident, but um, I saw the distribution company and a seller, he's actually one of my best friends. And I saw his business, I want to say back in 20, 2006 for several million and he had a couple of key people that he really wanted to take care of. I think he had two people that he wanted to take care of. And he gave them a big lump sum at the sale. I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was a percentage of the sale. And um, one of the, two of them had to stay with the new owner for so many years. And he didn't do it for that reason. He did, he did it just out of the goodness of his heart because he said, I would have never got here without you. Yeah. And I've got another company that we're selling for about 70 million and same thing. They've got key people that they're going to give a big fat check to when they're done. Yeah. yeah. A lot of business owners do that. A lot of business owners, not all, but, but many of them really care about their employees. Well, listen, those people become part of their family over a long period of time. They really do. And you know, you don't build a business, you build people and people build the business. Yeah. Yeah. So you should take care of your people. And I'm all I'm all for it. And there's been situations where buyers had to pay employees to sign a two or, you know, two year non-compete and stay very seldom because a lot of times, you know, they'll say, well, why am I signing non-compete? What do I get for it? <laughs> well, you get to keep your job. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that's that's kind of a um, that's kind of a fiscally conservative approach. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it's a, but I see uh, it more on the sell side than ever on the buy side. Yeah. Where do you work more? Which side do you work on more? Um, sellers. Always, mostly always on the sell side. Almost always on the sell side. Yeah. 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 Gotcha. Yeah. Um, and do yeah. you work on, do you have to work under, a, do you have a securities license that you work under? How, how does it work in your business? No, because a securities license, you know, I'm belong to m and Source and every, every association you can think of, I belong to. And that's if you're doing you know, broker type deals, like security type deals, stock type deals. And I'm not doing those. Oh, you mean because it's an asset sale, you don't have to. Uh, I, I see. So the only right. people that have to be licensed are the ones that are, that are transacting private stock transactions, which is an SEC regulated activity. 
correct. Oh, I gotcha. Okay. And if that happens, then I'll turn it over. <laughs> yeah, I got. I'll, you know, I never really yeah. thought about it that way, but uh, but that makes sense about who has to be licensed and who doesn't. So yeah, uh, good to know. So uh, so you were going to say uh, these six P's. I think you said one of them was people. So what other P's do we need to be pay attention to? Yeah. So number one, you know, number one. So when buyers look at buying businesses and your owners are trying to plan their exit. And like I said, so many owners never think about plan their exit. You really should. And exit rich is all about not just selling, but it's about building a sustainable company that's, that's sustainable, scalable when you're ready, sellable. And this is what buyers look for. So this, this is the buyer's criteria. Number one, people. They don't want to buy a business without people. You know, so you need to make sure you have the right people in the right seats. And you need to ask the who question. So Joel, everybody should ask the who question. Who in your business handles banking? Who in your business handles client service issues? Who in your business handles environmental? Who in your business handles tax issues? Who in your business handles? And it goes on and on and on. The key to the who is it should never be you. And that, and that makes a lot of sense to me because if it's me, it's not really a business. If it's you, it's not a business. And then it's harder to sell because if I take you out of the business, what do I have? It's like selling a chiropractor's office. You got a chiropractor. You take the chiropractor out. You have no business. I got a client who I'm selling $70 million company for. And she goes, they go, hey, can you sell Can you sell my friend's dental practice? I go, how many dentists? One. Yeah. Well, that, that's the difference between a practice and a business. Exactly. Exactly. They have a glorified job. So you want to build a business, not a job. You want to build a business that works for you and not you working for it. So you want to have the right people in the right seat and ask the who. Who does everything in your business and it should never be you. Yeah. You and know, I, I, I think of uh, I think of businesses as machines that generate money. And, you know, you got the accounting department does some stuff, the selling department does some stuff, the manufacturing department does some stuff. All the different gears are spinning and the wheels are going at the end out pops some profit. And the, the truth is the best owner uh, is not involved in running the machine. I mean, he's watching the machine run, but it's not running the machine. Yeah. And, and, I, uh, and I think the same way, but there's a lot of different things that go in between that machine, right? <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I try to simplify, but needless to say, uh, yes, very, very complex. Yeah. So people is number one. And then number two is product. You can't be in the, in the business unless you have the right product. So you need to ask yourself, is your business thriving or dying? Do you have an Amazon on your hand or do you have a Blockbuster? If you have a blockbuster, it's time to pivot. It's time to think. It's time to ask yourself this question. What business are you in and what business should you be in? What business are you in and what business should you be in? Because you're about to go down a rabbit hole. You're about to go out of business. And it, happen- it happens time and time and time and time again. It used to be when I wrote Sell Your Business for More Than It's Fourth in 2013 and I did the research. Back then, it used to be 85 to 95% of businesses, startups will go out of business, Right. One to five years, startups were at a huge risk of going out of business. Do you remember those statistics? Yeah, of course. But then when I wrote Exit Rich in 2019 and did the same research, I found out I was shocked. I actually had to do the research like 10 different times because I didn't believe it. The business landscape has flipped. Now it's only 30% of startups will go out of business in one to five years. Only 30%. No kidding. But out of 27.6 million businesses... 27.6 27.6 million businesses, businesses have been in business 10 years or longer, 70% of those businesses will go out of business. And I know you might not believe me, and I'll show you, I'll send you the research, but think about the, the public companies. You can't turn on 
the TV or open up a newspaper without hearing about another business failure. Toys R Us went out of business, Kmart went out of business, Montgomery Wards, JCPenney, Steinmart, GNC just closed down 900 locations, Starbucks is at risk. You're hearing about public companies. What about well, all can, the private I can, businesses? I can understand. I mean, it makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, it really, yep. the, the, the startup part, uh, not so much, but I'll tell you, the, the older companies going out of business makes a lot of sense because older companies kind of get set in their ways. They get, uh, they get legacy expenses. They get legacy ideas. And they're not on top of things and they're not adapting to disruption and innovation. And, they, and yeah, exactly. Exactly. You said the big thing. So I always say aim, aim. All business owners should aim. Always innovate and market. And these business owners stopped innovating. Like, look at Blockbuster. Blockbuster sold Netflix. They did nothing to innovate. They just sat back fat and happy and went out of business. And that's what's happening with these business owners. They stop innovating and they stop asking their clients, what do you need? What do you want? How can I make it easier to do business with us? You know, you know, if you stop and think about Blockbuster, it's a great example. You know, us human beings are we, we, our great fault. We do this confirmation bias thing, you know, so we look for things that support our, our idea. And Blockbuster, they couldn't even imagine that there would be another way that people would watch videos except for their own way. And they and they convinced themselves that. But but new people come uh, from a new company and they say, uh, we have a new idea and we think that people will like something different. And it's very difficult for a legacy company, an older company, to imagine the world being different than the world that they service because it's just it just it's what happens in, in those companies fall apart. And that's why they go out of business. Yeah. And plus younger companies have the benefit of, they don't have all this legacy expense. They don't have all this infrastructure. They don't have all this, uh, these contracts and things they have to honor. So if they don't innovate and they don't market, they will go out of business. And that's why we say, ask yourself, you know, with product, ask yourself this question, what business am I in? What business should I be in? What business am I in? What do I do very, very well? What business should I be in? I'll give you a couple of examples. Amazon. Ask himself, what business am I in? What business was Amazon in when they started? Uh, they were in the book business. They were in the book business. They asked themselves, what business are we in? We're in the book business. They asked themselves, what did we do really, really, really well? You know what they said? Fulfillment. fulfillment. Yeah. So what are they in now? They're in fulfillment. <laughs> they asked themselves, what business should we be in? The fulfillment business. Yeah. I'll give you another. Here's a legacy. Here's a legacy. That's a hard question. It's a great question because it's a theoretical question. And, you know, Smaller businesses, not the largest ones that can hire McKinsey and these other great companies. But I'll tell you, these, these smaller 20, 30, 50, $100 million companies, they need to do a better job of investing in advisory services, consultants exactly. that can help them. Uh, I mean, I exactly. work with a lot of companies on these disruption issues. I predict the future in a lot of different capacities. And companies, they just don't invest in, in getting outside assistance. And, and even if they get some, they may not even listen. So they may not listen. A, this, That's I love right. this. This is a brilliant discussion. And so I'll give you a legacy story, right? Because you're about legacy. Steve Jobs came back to Apple. Apple was failing. Remember that when Steve Jobs yeah, came yeah, back? Yeah, it sure was. Uh-huh. And what question does Steve Jobs ask? What business are we in? Okay. And you know what the answer was? No. What do you think the answer was? At that time? Mm-hmm. Well, it wasn't computers. Well, it wasn't. What was it? Well, they were doing computers at that time. That's what that's what Apple started as. Mm-hmm. But I don't I don't know what uh, I don't know what they thought it might have been. They were doing computers when he came back. Yeah. OK. So, yeah. So they were in the computer. So we asked what business are we in? I said, we're in the computer business. And he said, what do we do really, really well? We do technology really, really well. What business should we be in? 
And he said, we should be in the connecting business. Everyone around the world should have one of these smartphones. We should be in the connecting, the communications business. That's what started the iPhone. You remember that? Yeah. When Steve Jobs it's came so, back, that's what know, started the is, iPhone, the iPad, you, the iPod. When you're huh? in the eye of the storm, it is so hard to, to do that. You can't yeah. do it yourself. And your team, the people sitting in your boardroom can't do this themselves. I mean, I've, I've facilitated one retreat after the next. And the people sitting in the room, they need some outside stimulation. They cannot do this by themselves. I agree with you a thousand percent. I really do. But I always say you can't read the label from the inside of the bottle. No, you yeah, can't. Outsider's perspective to read the warning signs and keep you out of the danger zone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what's yeah. Uh, so you got people, you got product. So uh, I got product are- and then processes. So process processes is typically overlooked. Most business owners don't think about process until they have to out of necessity (laughs) because somebody got injured or a client got really upset. And, you know, processes should be designed with the customer experience in mind. Let me give you a story about that really quickly. Did you ever watch a movie, The Founder? No. Oh, the McDonald's? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I love that. Yeah. Okay. So, so McDonald's started back in the forties, right? Yeah. So McDonald's started back in the 40s. Back then, for restaurants, what did you have? You had like the Sonic-type restaurants, right? Where you would drive up, they come out on roller skates, they serve your food. It was always wrong, and it took forever. So McDonald's objective, their mission statement was to provide quality, great-tasting food under two minutes. Remember that? Yeah. That was their mission. So they took their employees to an empty tennis court. They drew up the entire process on the tennis court and they raced it and drew it and re-raced it. And they did this for <laughs> hours. And then they, they designed who's going to take the order, who's going to toast the buns, who's going to cook the burger, who's going to put the pickles on the buns, and who's going to give it to the client in two minutes or less. They designed the processes with the customer experience in mind. That's why no matter what McDonald's you go to, Decades later, whether it's Russia, Singapore, America, it's the same. The experience is the same because they designed it with a customer experience in mind. It's productive. It's efficient. It's well-documented. All the employees are trained yeah. on it. You know what? So processes are huge. Huh? Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a brilliant thing. And the process yeah. is really that machine. It, it's, it's they do it the same way every time over and over and over and over again. And yes. they do it really well. It's a machine. It's a machine. You're right. And you know what? I want to say one more thing since you watched the founder. So here's a, one more example for the question. What business are you in? What business should you be in? Do you remember when Ray Kroc came in and he was in the bank and he was over leveraged? He already took out a loan against his house. His wife was so mad at him and the franchisees weren't paying. They were non-compliant, all this stuff. And do you remember in the bank, the loan officer said, no, I can't lend you any more money. You're already over leveraged. And there was a gentleman that followed him out of the bank and he asked him, what business were you in? Well, I know, I know what business business, huh? He's in the real estate business. I mean, No. no, not then. Oh, not Ray, then, but Ray's later. Ray's answer was, I'm in the restaurant business. And that gentleman, I forget the gentleman's name. He said, no, 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 you're not in the restaurant business. What business are you in? And Ray's like, I'm in the restaurant business. He goes, what business should you be in? And Ray's like, I don't know. And he goes, you need to be in the real estate business. Gotcha. Yeah. And that's yeah. when Ray started to buy up all the property, started to build the building, started to lease to the franchisees. That one question, if he didn't have that, those two questions from that outsider's perspective, he would have never grown McDonald's to what it is today. McDonald's is still the largest real estate holding company in the world because you know, of that. I, I actually, I know this because I've done business with McDonald's. We built um, 
we built a shopping center next door to a McDonald's. I mean, so uh, I'm quite familiar. And when I learned this about 30 years ago about McDonald's, that they were in the real estate business, I, I just, I never perceived it that way because I was young at that time, yeah. but I never perceived it that way. And it was a shock to learn. And uh, sometimes uh, companies are in a business different than what you think. So let's keep going. What's next? All right. So you got people, product processes, right? Next is proprietary and it's the highest value driver there is. Proprietary. There's six pillars to proprietary. Number one is brand. The bigger the brand, the bigger the sales price, as long as you're still relevant to your clients. Toys R Us is not worth anything because <laughs> they're out of business, right? They were yeah. in business. Talk about a company that never innovated. There's a company that never innovated over 60 years of being in business. They never innovated. They never changed anything. So branding is huge. What brand do you think is the biggest? I think is Apple's or Apple one of those. It's uh, you're right. No, it's Apple. It's yeah, three hundred eighty nine yeah. billion dollars. That's just for the brand. That's not assets. That's not EBITDA. That's not inventory. That's not real estate. Just the brand is worth three hundred eighty nine billion. Coca Cola brand is worth eighty nine billion. So branding is huge. The better branded you are, the more money you'll get for your company. The other big thing is trademarks. And one of the big mistakes that owners make is when they start their company or they buy a company, they only get a state trademark. They don't get a federal trademark. So yours can go by and you can get a cease and desist letter. And now you have to spend money to fight that because you never protect your name federal. Well, not, not only that, but you, you invested enormously in your brand that may be taken away from you. So again, exactly. you know, we have to speed through a few more of these things here, but that kind of goes back to the point where if you don't get the right outside assistance, the right attorneys, I mean, there are attorneys that specialize in intellectual property. You don't go to your neighborhood garden variety attorney to do your intellectual property. You go to that person for you know what they're good at, but you got to get the right people doing the right thing. So let's go through a few okay. more things. Yeah. So, so, well, I need to go through the whole proprietary. So, so branding trademarks is huge. Patents are huge contracts, vendor contracts, distributor contracts, manufacturing contracts, but client contracts are the most valuable because buyers look at that as guaranteed income. And they look at that as residual in some cases, like we're selling a $70 million commercial real estate company that has 300 contracts. And yep. so, but, but, but if they don't have that transferability clause, then that deal is probably not going to happen because it's going to be an asset sell. So all business owners need to add that transferability clause. And I will tell you 99.9% .9 of business owners don't have that in their contracts. The other big thing in proprietary is databases. WhatsApp, Facebook paid $19 billion for WhatsApp. They were losing money. They were hemorrhaging, but they had a billion users and WhatsApp knew that they could monetize and ROI that. So buyers buy synergies. If you, get, if you have the right synergies, you can get a really high, high multiple if we have the right buyer. And then the other thing is prime, what we call prime real estate in business. Let's say that you sell, you, sell pillow, you sell pillows and you have the number one spot on Wayfair. Do you know what other home good companies would pay for that spot? <laughs> Let's say that you just developed a unique vacuum cleaner and you have a patent on that and you corner the market on Amazon. Or let's say that you have a skincare product and you have Rush Lumbar and Glenn Beck and other celebrity endorsements. That is huge. And companies will pay big bucks for that. That is so prime let, let me, real estate. So we're, we're kind of running out of time. You, you, you are a consummate expert. I mean, I mean, it is rare to hear somebody that has the level of uh, background that you have. Uh, and, and I think that's the inside track to me. 
Uh, you know, if they can have your assistance, then they have the inside track no matter what. I've, I've met a lot of different people. It's rare that somebody does it. And I know you recently wrote a book and I, I hope that a lot of this stuff is documented in that book. It is. is it? Most of it is not all okay. of it. I got to so, come out with a sequel. Well, I'm sure that everything <laughs> in your brain can't be in a single book. There wouldn't be enough pages to print that somebody could carry it. It'd be like a yellow pages, but could, could you, uh, could you just tell, tell us where we can get that book and what the book yeah. is? Because can I just tell the other two piece? Okay, go ahead. Patrons. Patrons is number five. Patrons, that's customers. You need to have customer diversification, not customer concentration. And if you've been in business 30 or 40 years, your customers are probably aging out. So you need to make sure you innovate and get new customers. The last P is profit. And somebody asked me earlier, Michelle, why do you put profits last? Because profits will never be big if you don't get the other five things right. Yeah. Profits is never the problem. Never the problem. It's the symptom of not having the right people, not having the right product, not having the right processes, not protecting your IP. It's a symptom. Yeah. Michelle, you're a superstar. You you really do know what you're doing. And thank you. I would encourage people to be in touch with you because they clearly thank you. So can uh, you're, I tell you're a wonderful resource. Can't tell them how to get the book? Tell them. Exit Rich. So if everybody goes to exitrichbook.com, we're in pre-sales right now. You can buy it less expensive here than Amazon or, or Hudson or Books a Million. $24.79 includes shipping. $24.79 includes shipping. If you buy it, exitrichbook.com, you get the download immediately. So you don't have to wait till the book comes out in January. You get the download today. Plus, you get a lifetime book membership into Exit Rich Book Club. Will you have me doing all this kind of training and stuff? Plus, all your documents are there. If you've never seen a due diligence checklist, it's there. If you've never seen closing docs, it's there. So everything is there that you need, all the documentation. Plus, you get 30 days into Club CEOs where we do hot seats, masterminds, Q&As to try to help business owners, you know, ask those questions, those transformational questions. And then the book will be shipped to your doorstep when it comes out. So that's exitrichbook.com. Well, listen, you're an encyclopedia. Not only that, but you're you're quite a nice person. And I really enjoyed <laughs> this conversation. So thank you for sharing the inside track on how to monetize a business uh, that the business owners have had for years and years. And uh, we appreciate you being on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, listen, we'll stay in touch. Let's stay in touch. We're probably going to do some business together. Let's do it. You've been listening to Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. For more insights and to learn more, visit joelblock.com. How about a shout out and a giant thanks to my podcast producer, David Wolf, and his team at Podcast and Radio Networks. Profit from the inside simply wouldn't be what it is without David and his team. For more information or to learn how you can launch and produce your own podcast, reach out to podcastandradio.com. Get the inside track on 20 top business trends for 2020 from Joel Block. Joel's insights bring Wall Street to your street so you can profit from the inside in 2020. Just text the word TREND to 72000. That's 72000 and download your free copy today. Grab your phone and get the inside track on business trends that affect you and your business. Just text the word TREND to 72000 for your copy now. Produced by Audavita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.